This is Mark chapter 15. I'm actually going to reread some of the verses that we looked at last week because uh, you can go one of two ways with it. 40 and 41 can actually be an end to that long section on the crucifixion that Tim uh, very beautifully worked us through last week, but you could also see it as the beginning of this last episode in the book, specifically with the introduction of uh, these women in verse 40. So I'm going to begin with Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 40. It says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of God for the people of God. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and I'm, I'm getting older now. Um, that's relative, I guess, but I'll be 35 in November, and I remember being in high school thinking, gosh, anybody in their 30s is, is ancient, and here I am now. But we were talking about um, just this past year and some difficult situations, and, and he reminded me of something that had taken place a year prior. And my initial response was, gosh, it's been a year already. The timing of this particular story, I think sometimes we forget um, in this case, not how long it's been, but how condensed of a time that we see Jesus uh, in these last few big events in his life. Just a mere 24 hours. Some 100 or so verses in Mark where he slows down to give us this, this long day in Jesus' life. In the span of 24 hours, Jesus and the disciples have the Last Supper, and this takes place after sunset. Remember, in the Jewish reckoning of time, from sundown to, to the following sundown would constitute one day. So the beginning of this day was kicked off by the Last Supper, where Jesus was, was in a room with his disciples, and he was um, serving communion for the first time. This is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. He was, he was inaugurating that act he would later leave and then go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane with pain, with angst to his father. If there's any other way that we can do this, let's do it. Jesus sort of, uh, in, in some texts it would say that Jesus is either sweating blood or his, his sweat was like blood. He was, he was in a place of, of emotional torment, praying to his father that, that something else would take place. But as we know, the response was that it wasn't to be that way. Later, he would be betrayed by one of his, his friends, his, his 12 disciples that had given him up to the religious leaders. 
Jesus suffering through uh, not only this emotional torment, but seeing the pain and separation that he would go through with, with his friends and the betrayal that he would face. Then he would be immediately taken to Caiaphas, the high priest at the time where he would be tried. And again, I've got that trial in quotation marks because some scholars don't quite know what to do with it. It doesn't seem as though they were keeping all the laws of Jewish trials, but at the same time, they just wanted to get enough to take him to Pilate, who was the Roman ruler at the time, who actually had the authority to end Jesus' life. So in the span of 12 hours or so, we see all these different events, and Jesus is crucified. Pilate doesn't really want to do it, but he's, he's kind of weak and just doesn't want to incite a rebellion or to have all these Jewish people be so upset at what's going on. He just kind of washes his hands of the whole situation and gives Jesus up to be flogged and then to be crucified. And this takes place at around nine in the morning. Jesus is on the cross for roughly six hours. And in our text that we looked at tonight, Pilate is amazed at how quick Jesus dies. That's not how it usually goes, but there are so many different factors and so many different circumstances happening in Jesus' life, as Tim uh, told us about last week, that, that may have rushed this a bit. But at three o'clock, Jesus cries out his, his final words, his, his last breath, his, his cry of despair and abandonment. And then before the sun goes down, Jesus is taken down from the cross wrapped in burial cloths and put in a tomb in a span of 24 hours. Jesus' friends have stories of breaking bread with him, of talking with him, of, of hearing him teach. And 24 hours later, he's dead and he's buried. Just take a moment for a second and wrap your brain around the, the quickness in which this takes place where Jesus was among them, walking with them, praying with them, eating food with them, teaching them, celebrating with them, just being in the presence of his friends and his companions, and then he's gone in their mind, potentially for forever. And just wrap your brain around this for, for a moment. In the span of 24 hours, the death and burial of your leader of your teacher, in a, in a very real sense of your hope, the person that you had placed all your expectations upon, the one who was going to bring about the kingdom, the one who was going to be uh, the forgiver of sins, the one who would end Roman oppression perhaps, the one who would just bring about the kingdom in a way that was tangible and physical and beautiful, and now he's gone. In a span of 24 hours, the death and burial of your friend. And maybe, sadly, some of us have been there in our lives where we can remember just being with someone not long ago and now they're gone. But what, what struck me in reading this passage this week was not only was this, this uh, an instance of death and then a few days later a funeral, this was a death and a burial and a complete removal from where Jesus was, completely out of the sight of these followers, not out of mind, but it just seems striking to me and, and different and in the span of 24 hours. In the text that we're looking at tonight, there's two different responses to this. We've got the response of the women 
which I love, and I think this is an important passage that we'll look at tonight that's got real implications for us as a community and for um, the Christian family as a whole. And we also have the response of Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to dip into a little bit of the history here, but tonight I really just want to allow us to think, to create uh, a, a space where we can ponder this story and see how we might fit in and see what we can learn from it. So we'll take these two uh, one at a time. We'll talk about the women and we'll talk about uh, Joseph of Arimathea. But what I want to, to frame our, our way into this story is seeing them both in their own very different ways as characters who demonstrate resolve, commitment, boldness or tenacity, and risk. The way that both of these characters or sets of characters go about acting out these last few moments of Jesus' life and the events immediately following his death demonstrate them to be people that are sticking their neck out for what it is that they believe. So we'll start uh, by looking at the women in the text. We are introduced to Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger or James the the less, uh, and Joseph, and then also Salome. We don't know anything about these women in the book of Mark. This is the first time that there's named women in this story. Um, However, we do know some things about Mary Magdalene from other gospel traditions. She was uh, one who had demons cast out of her according to the book of Luke. But Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, we don't know anything about. And Salome, we don't really know anything about. But what's interesting about these women, it says in Galilee, they had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. And Mark begins to help us start thinking through, oh yeah, there were some practical necessities that Jesus needed as he's just kind of going from town to town and and going through ministry and healing people and preaching and teaching. I mean, Jesus probably could have done whatever he he wanted to do, but... um, it says here that these women were about his, his needs, perhaps helping him to find food and, and a place to stay and what have you. But they were very involved in the day-to-day of, of the ministry. And then it also says many other women who had come up with Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee were also there with him. This is at the scene of the crucifixion. And what Mark is doing is very subtle, but he's saying the women that were part of Jesus' larger circle they were still present in his life. One scholar says the important role played by these women in the closing stages of Mark's narrative is a pointer to something new in the movement Jesus has begun, which contrasts strongly with the male domination of the society of his and Mark's time. Unpack that for a second. When you think about Jesus, you think about his 12 disciples. When you think about people who are teaching and preaching in the early church, you think about men. When you think about this society, you think about a patriarchal, male-dominant society, yet what Mark is doing is fascinating, if nothing else, very subtly saying the women are still present. This scholar continues, this is R.T. France, he says, when all the male disciples have deserted, the women are still there, faithful to the last. Perhaps there was a little bit less... um, weightiness on their presence, but still what we see here is a picture that's worth considering. France goes on, and it will be to them first that the message of the resurrection is entrusted. I saw a meme around Easter time that says like the very first preachers of the gospel were women. 
And not to get on a soapbox here, but if you think about the American church, that voice has largely been silenced. Yet for Mark and his gospel, he's at least wanting us to see that these people are playing a pivotal role in the gospel. They're playing a pivotal role in not only spreading the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, but throughout his ministry, they have been present and they have been empowered. And I at least want to pause here and promote some things to think about. That as we um, think about our own context, are we still dominated by those structures of patriarchalism and hierarchy where the voice of certain people is privileged more than others? And here, this goes beyond gender boundaries. This is, oh, well, this person has been to seminary, so what they say has more weight, and this person just got saved, so I'm not really going to listen to them, or this person has thought about this and that, and, and we start to categorize and, and characterize who and when and where the Spirit can, can use us. I wonder that if in some way we have become part of the people that silence or predict how and when and where God chooses to speak. In this context, and some people like to go in this route, to allow women to be the ones entrusted with the gospel was completely and utterly counterintuitive. So people would say that there's no way on earth that these gospel authors were making this stuff up because if they did, they would have put the resurrection in the mouths of men because the testimony of women was absolutely worthless in the first century. And here we at least see hints of the story moving in a different trajectory and in a different way. We also meet Joseph of Arimathea, and the text says that Joseph of Arimathea is a prominent member of the council, the religious authorities, the elite of the time. Now, this is kind of problematic for close readers of the book of Mark, because in earlier passages, Mark says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which Joseph of Arimathea was a part, the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And then later in Mark chapter 15, it says very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So what some people are, are struggling with is how Joseph of Arimathea is part of this group, but earlier in the text it says that everyone is plotting and scheming and trying to get Jesus to be killed, yet Joseph is in that crew, and here he is making bold moves for Jesus to get his body to put him in a tomb. And some people have even wanted to go so far as to say that maybe Joseph of Arimathea wasn't a, a follower of Jesus, or maybe he wasn't even a sympathizer with Jesus. There was, there was Jewish laws that would say, you know, it's, it's customary to bring people down after their death and to bury them quickly because it would be a shameful act, not only for um, the person who has passed away, but just for the people in general. So perhaps Joseph of Arimathea was fueled by his Jewish um, zealotry. That seems to be a bad reading to me because as we go on in the book of, of Mark, we'll see some interesting things about Joseph of Arimathea. But um, even before we go there, Luke has this comment that, that the other gospels do not. It says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. 
Mark doesn't give us that detail. He paints the picture of everybody's in, in accord here and everybody wants to put Jesus to death. But maybe in the background, we see a handful of people saying, no, wait, why, what, how, what's happening? And Luke brings us to the fore here where he's saying Joseph was not one who had consented with the decision of the whole Sanhedrin when they're trying, scraping tooth and nail to try to get Jesus to be killed. But in the book of Mark, it, it continues that he's one of the members of this council that had, in fact, um, plotted for Jesus' death. But it says that Joseph of Arimathea was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. A thing that Jesus was supposed to be bringing to earth. And the hints there that he was not just a sympathizer of Jesus' message, but a follower. Even if a covert follower. Think of the dangers of being a part of a group of people, a religious elite, a religious leadership that's saying we want this guy dead and then being one on the inside that actually doesn't want that guy dead and the risk that's involved. I love how the text continues. This is who Joseph of Arimathea is. He's breaking away from this crew that wanted Jesus dead and is probably off celebrating somewhere with lots of bottles of wine and food and they're just having a great time and he sneaks away to go ask Pilate and it says that he goes boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. And he begins to make moves to demonstrate a commitment in his life that he has not put out on the table yet. This is like a moment maybe in your life where you begin to stand up for something where the people around you are not in agreement and you say, wait, that's not right. And even on our own small levels, that's a, that's a risky move when you're putting your relationships in jeopardy and you're sticking your neck out for another person and here, Joseph is doing that. Joel Marcus says, such a request would have required audacity since Jesus had been crucified as an enemy of the state and any charitable act towards him might identify the benefactor as a member of a subversive group. Cut through that to get to this. Any request that would have looked upon Jesus with sympathy or charity could have been viewed as and act against the empire. This is not just Joseph sneaking away, hoping that he doesn't tick off his friends. This is also Joseph sneaking away and sticking his neck out in front of Pilate, who could be super ticked at what he's doing, because this would show himself to be a sympathizer with Jesus' movement. Uh, another scholar says, Mark portrays Joseph doing something the disciples had feared to do. He associates himself with the crucified Jesus. Listen to that line. He associates himself with the crucified, and in our context, the risen Jesus. Can you relate to that? Now, this isn't like a cheap pastor trick where I lay the guilt on super heavy and say, these guys are risking it. Can you risk it too? This is more, understand the women and Joseph, what they're doing and think about our lives, if we can actually relate to that. 
if we find ourselves in circumstances not where it's like people are making fun of Jesus and we say, hey, don't make fun of Jesus, but what if we're in a situation where people are being maligned or ostracized or pushed out and we say, um, stop and welcome. Can we be the people that are the ambassadors of Jesus? It's not always like this great apologetics moment when you're at a table and somebody says, I just would believe in the resurrection. If somebody could give me three academic proofs that Jesus' tomb was really empty and then you launch it, well, I read this book and you lay it out. It's usually a bit different where we are becoming Jesus to people by our actions of love and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy. And at times that is hard, and at times, that takes us moving away from our comfortability into, I'm going to stick my neck out for this person for the sake of the gospel. Can we relate to this in any way? The story continues. Uh, So Joseph, after being uh, granted rights to go get Jesus' body, it says that he bought some linen cloth Uh, And this, for some people, demonstrates the fact that this is not yet Sabbath because he could not have gone and bought any sort of linen cloths on Sabbath. It would have been impossible. So the timing of this is uh, from Jesus' death at around 3 o'clock to before the sun has set. Joseph is wheeling and dealing, getting uh, the rights to the body from Pilate and then also getting everything that he needs to put the body into this burial plot that he has. So Joseph bought some linen cloth. He took down the body. He wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. It's also, if you're super nerdy and you want some extra details, that linen word there is the same one for the disciple who was in the garden that was in his linen cloth and then just left it and ran away naked. Same, same kind of linen cloth. Okay? And if you weren't here that week, then just kind of just look at me like this and move on. Okay, so he, he buys this linen cloth, he wraps Jesus in it, and he places him in a tomb that's cut out of rock. A couple of things that we can think about tombs, because I know that for the Christian crowd, we've got all, we're flashing back to the passion plays and the old guy in the church, the one guy with the beard who plays the role of Jesus or whatever, like we're flashing back to that as our understanding of what the tomb might have looked like. Uh, but most people would say, that in tombs, they would have been shared. It wasn't just an individual tomb, but it would have been a family tomb where you would have placed a lot of uh, different people in there at any one time. And the tombs would have looked something similar to this, a two by two roughly uh, opening, six feet deep, and you would put uh, the corpse in head first. Burial is also a a two-stage process. where they would put the body that's been prepared and wrapped into one of these kind of cut-out holes. And then later, I think you can see it there, those boxes with the uh, triangle tops in here, those are called ossuaries. So after the body would decompose, you'd have this wrapping with all the bones, and you'd bring those out, and you'd put the bones in a box. And then you'd put the box back in the cubby. Now, some people would say that this is similar to, to a tomb that Jesus would have been in, but I know that there's also in your mind, if you've spent time in church, you've got that like this center table in the middle of the tomb, and that's where Jesus is laying, and then he leaves his clothes there, and his face, the face napkin I, is laying there. I'm sorry, that's, you know what I'm saying? Okay, I can stop talking about it now for the sake of the room and myself. Okay, um, maybe a burial shelf or a table, maybe, but 
maybe not. So here again, I'm just kind of throwing things out there to you to give you a picture of what's going on. It's also interesting to me, and I talked about this at Easter, it says that Joseph rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Interesting tidbit. Of the 900 second temple tombs that archaeologists have found, only four had round stones in the front like this. Most had a square stone that would be fitted into a square cutout, and it probably would have been small, so people like ducked in to walk into this bigger carved out room with all the different um, cutouts. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. He was a man of prominence. So this is not to debunk the, the, the vision that you have in your mind of the tomb that, that um, Jesus might have been in. Some scholars would say that it actually seems uh, likely that he was in a tomb with a stone that's rolled because of the way that the text talks about they are rolling the stone in front of it. It's just interesting to me that that's not how most people were buried. But here we see Joseph, he's wheeling and dealing, he gets the cloth, he gets the body, he wraps him up and does a, as best a job that he can of preparing the body, putting Jesus into the tomb, and then shutting the door, rolling this massive stone in front. These stones weighed anywhere from 900 to a couple thousand pounds, according to some folks. Like, they were, they were no joke, which is why when the women are going later, they say, how in the world... Are we going to move this stone? It was a big deal. But in the, in the scope of 24 hours, death, bury, stone in front, your friend is gone. Mark cracks the door just a touch. He says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid which sets up this story of the resurrection. But I want to, instead of rushing ahead to Sunday, I want to sit with you in a moment of Friday and Saturday. Despair, suffering, brokenness, confusion, fear. Your leader, your hope, everything that you have been placing your expectation upon, he's gone. He's buried, and a stone has been rolled in front of the door. Mark doesn't really allow us too much time to ponder that, because as we turn the page, we get into Mark chapter 16, in this very brief retelling of the resurrection account that I want to read for you and just add a little bit of commentary. It says, when the Sabbath was over... Because remember, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they couldn't do anything on Sabbath. They were just waiting to go back to prepare the body because if Jesus had been taken off the cross around three o'clock and buried before the sun goes down, it couldn't have been a great job. So they just wanted to go back and, and give the body a, a better preparation. He wanted to go back with the spices and the ointments and the things to, um, to prepare him well wanted to go back. It says they, they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance? I love this tidbit, because it's like, we got to go get our stuff. We're going to go. And then on the way, they say, oh, 
what about that big massive stone that's gonna keep us from entering? This is the problem that they create, but this isn't the problem in the text that they encounter because it says they look up and they see that the stone, which was very large, nice tidbit mark, thank you, uh, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? And remember, they saw where he had been laid. Instead, go and tell the disciples and Peter. You remember the guy that denies Jesus three times, that a little bit before says, Jesus, even if you die, I'll be right there with you. I, I'm, your, I'm your boy and I got your back. Wherever you go, I go. It'll, it'll be cool. I'm with you until the stuff actually hits the fan and Peter is off in the corner huddling around a fire saying, I don't even know the man and cussing his face off to, to deny any sort of association with Jesus. And this angel messenger guy in the, in the tomb says to the ladies, go and tell the disciples and specifically go tell Peter. Because I know that Peter is a super emotional guy and I know that he has not had any sleep in between here and there and I know that he is beating himself up and I know that he has written himself out of this story. But you guys go and you tell the disciples and you tell Peter. Tell him that he is going ahead of you into Galilee where this all started, where you guys became the crew that you are where you saw all the stuff that Jesus did. He's gonna go back there. He's gonna go ahead of you and there you're going to see him just as he told you, Peter. The guy who says, no way, no how. I don't even know him. And now there's this little trace of hope and restoration. Tell him and tell Peter that he'll see Jesus again. And this is the weird part. It says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And this is where we could add a couple of weeks on because if you're looking at your Bible that you have either on your phone or in print somewhere before you, there's more verses to the book of Mark. It doesn't technically end with verse eight, although most scholars would say that any verses past this have been added later to account for the fact that this is a terrible ending of the story. Read it again. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Close the book, hang the curtain. It's like it's done. That's a terrible ending to a story that's laced with hope. They're scared, and they don't know what happened, and they don't know what to do, and they don't know where to go or what to say. N.T. Wright thinks that another ending has been written that's now lost other people would say that perhaps Mark wanted to do this intentionally so that when you would read this story, people from the audience would jump up and finish the rest of it. They didn't stay scared. They went out and they told everybody, and that's how we know. That's the job that they did, and now we can celebrate the risen Christ together. This story, it doesn't end with people trembling and bewildered and scared. It ends in, in power, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It ends with the hope of resurrection. This story that we've been looking at for 55 weeks, for over a year, it ends with hope. It ends with forgiveness, especially in that little detail of go tell Peter, the guy that, who has completely disowned me, 
tell him that I'm not getting him off the hook that fast. It ends with an announcement of the gospel that must have happened or else we would not be here. It ends with resolve and commitment and boldness and risk. Here's where I want to leave us. When you think about your life and you think about the way that you understand who Jesus is and what he has done, does it evoke in you boldness, commitment, resolve, risk? Does it evoke in you excitement and passion? Not just for yourself, but you want to share it with everyone else around you. Does it evoke in you excitement and anticipation of what could happen in the future. If we actually think about the resurrection and we buy into the fact that Jesus was dead and then he was raised from the dead, does that impact the way that we pray? Does it impact the way that we seek the spirit to intercede on our, on our behalf and to, um, do we pray for healing? Do we pray for forgiveness? Do we allow ourselves to see us as part of the story? Or have we, like Peter, written ourselves out and we're just kind of cowering and waiting? Do we see the power of the resurrection, and does that transform everything in our lives? Or are we trembling and afraid and silent? If the story does end here and the, the idea is for the people in the community to stand up and to tell their story of how the risen Christ has impacted them, what story would you tell and here I'm talking to the people that have occupied space in this church and people that have occupied space within the Christian community for some time. What is your story of hope and forgiveness? How have you demonstrated yourself to be bold and a risk taker for the sake of the gospel? My hope is that this story that we've spent so much time looking at is not just a cute sermon that we hear, but it's something that completely changes who we are. The guy in the tomb says he's not here. He's risen. And he's going ahead of you, and he'll meet you again. Those sorts of truths, do they impact our lives as well? Or have we settled for something cheap for something powerless? Have we written ourselves out of the story? Have we declared who God can and cannot use? Have we pushed away the spirit? Or does this story set a trajectory where when given the opportunity, we can rise and we can say, let me tell you a little something about the risen Jesus. And let me tell you how he's changed everything about me. May that be our hope that the gospel has so taken control of us that we can do nothing other than tell of the good news and how it has changed us and how we have seen it and its power and its goodness and that we can begin to live in light of it each and every day.